You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Good evening. My name is Scott Radnitz. I'm the director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies. And I'm happy to welcome everybody here tonight to the third annual Herb J. Ellison Memorial Lecture. Professor Ellison was a Soviet expert who worked at the Jackson School of International Studies for 34 years. He believed not only in teaching and research, but also in public engagement. For the lecture that we named in his honor, we bring in speakers from outside academia who can shed light on current events. Now, all of us deal with the real world in some way, but we like to bring in people who are close to events and who can maybe bring an insider's perspective. The Ellison Center has a large portfolio of activities, such as teaching languages in the post-communist region, training students with an interdisciplinary education, outreach to schools and the public, and acting as a local and national resource for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia. Bridging the so-called gap between academia and policy is one of our priorities. That's why we've invited someone tonight all the way from Washington, D.C., although he was already on the West Coast for a book tour. Before I introduce the speaker, I would like to thank a few people for setting everything up tonight. Uh, Bill Lyon, who's over here. Uh, Sarah McPhee and Rachel Brown, who laid the groundwork for, for this talk. After the talk, uh, people will have an opportunity to ask questions, and somebody will come around with a microphone. Tom DeWall, our speaker tonight, is a senior associate in the Russian and Eurasian program at the Carnegie Endowment in Washington, D.C., and specializes in the Caucasus and Black Sea regions. He's an expert on the unresolved conflicts of the South Caucasus, Abkhazia and Nagorno-Karabakh in South Ossetia. He is a go-to person in DC and everywhere else when a reporter needs a comment on breaking news in these faraway places. DeWall has worked extensively as a journalist and writer, including for BBC World, uh, The Moscow Times, Times of London, and The Economist. And he has also specialized in Russian politics and the situation in Chechnya. He's written several books. The co-author, of Chechnya Calamity in the Caucasus, and is also the author of the authoritative book on the Karabakh conflict called Black Garden, which has been translated into Azeri, Armenian, Russian, and Turkish. He also wrote The Caucasus and Introduction. His latest book is called Great Catastrophe, Armenians and Turks in the Shadow of Genocide. You can buy a copy outside these doors, and this is what Tom DeWall will be talking about tonight. So please join me in welcoming Tom DeWall. Very glad to be uh, with you this evening. As you can see from my uh, accent, I'm from even further away than, than Washington, D.C. It's great to be here on my first uh, visit to Seattle. Um, I've worked for 20 years, more than 20 years actually, um, in the Caucasus region and, and in Russia, 
Um, but there's one issue which kind of looms over this region. It's a historical issue, uh, which I would define as probably the most live historical issue in, in contemporary politics in the world today. That's the issue of what happened in 1915, a century ago, uh, the destruction uh, and deportation of the Armenians of the Ottoman Empire, what came to be known later um, as the Armenian Genocide. And that's my topic uh, tonight. Not so much the, the history of 1915 as uh, what happened afterwards, the history of the history, and also the theme of how, uh, what was known as the Great Catastrophe, and is still known to Armenians as the Great Catastrophe, or the Great Crime, also the Metsyagan, became uh, the Armenian Genocide, um, a term um, disputed by many, um, but I think uh, increasingly adopted, a term which is also has certain problems uh, associated with it. So it's, um, my, my topic is both uh, the Armenian theme in itself, and, and Armenians and Turks, and also uh, a kind of bigger issue, which is um, how we deal with events which long ago in the past, everyone associated with those events is dead, and yet they still have a resonance. What do we owe to the past? Um, what do we let go? What do we cling on to? Uh, how much do we owe uh, to the past? And I think um, when we look at the, everything associated with the, with the Armenian Genocide, everything uh, that is, is, is a very uh, important issue, and one which has associations with other uh, conflicts and atrocities uh, as well. Um, let me just so briefly explain to you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, the facts, as far as I'm concerned, of what happened are, are more or less clear. I'm not going to dispute the facts of what happened uh, to the Armenians in 1915. I don't believe um, there is basically a dispute about the facts. Um, I'm also not a historian, I'm not an academic historian. I'm more focused on the recent past than on the distant past. Um, I don't, um, I'm, uh, as it were, a journalist and historian of the present. That's, that's, that, that's more of my role. Um, so that's what I'm not going to be. But not going to be doing. But let me, let me start with a metaphor. Uh, it's a personal metaphor, but I think it's a general metaphor. Um, I've spent, as I said, um, been traveling to Armenia uh, for 20 years, or even went as a student uh, in the 1980s. Um, and the Republic of Armenia, a small post-Soviet uh, republic, um, um, most of the time, um, the weather's not so good, you're engaged in your day-to-day -day business, you don't look up, you don't see something filling the whole horizon, and that's Mount Ararat. And suddenly on a clear day, or you just happen to have the right vantage spot, suddenly this incredible mountain uh, is filling the horizon, and that's Mount Ararat. Uh, this enormously high mountain uh, fills the horizon, um, and it's also across the border in the Republic of Turkey. It's not actually in Armenia itself. Um, that, for me, is the kind of metaphor of, of these events of 1915, the Armenians um, and for the Caucasus, uh, an event which kind of dominates history and has shaped the history, not just of the Armenians, but of many other peoples as well, of that region. But one which um, it dominates, but you don't engage with it necessarily day to day. Um, as someone who'd uh, worked in the Caucasus, it only really started to make sense to me personally when I started um, to visit Turkey, and particularly eastern Turkey, in the lands that the Ottoman Armenians had lived in uh, prior to uh, 1915 until uh, they were all, or almost all, deported. Um, and this book would not have been possible to write 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but what's happened 
basically since 2002, since the election of the AKP government in Turkey, is that some space has opened up. I don't want to overemphasize what's happened, but it's very important. Space has opened up in Turkey uh, where for a debate about um, Turkish minorities, about history, about the past, um, and in that space, the Armenian issue of what happened to the Armenians in 1915 is now being talked about in Turkey in a way that was not possible 10 or 15 years ago. The stories that Armenians have passed down in diaspora from um, through the generations are now linking up with the territory that they left. Um, just, to, just to, for those of you um, not familiar with this rather gruesome and terrible story, let me just try and encapsulate it in a, in a couple of sentences. It, it is um, the First World War. Um, since um, 1908, a radical nationalist modernizing group, commonly known as the Young Turks, have taken power uh, in the Ottoman Empire. The empire is, is under enormous strain. Um, the Balkan Wars are fought. And then the, the First World War breaks out in 1914, and this group takes the Ottoman Empire into that war with Germany, on the side of Germany, and against the traditional foe of Russia. Meanwhile, there are up to two million uh, Christian Armenians, mainly in the eastern part of the Ottoman Empire, um, who've um, increasingly come into conflict with local Muslims overseas, socio-economic issues, who've been on the brunt of pogroms and, and abuse. And they're identified also as being a potential fifth column of the Russians by, by the, um, this young Turk leadership. Um, in April 1915, powers attacking Turkey and this uh, leadership takes the decision to deport not just the political leaders of the Armenians, but the whole Armenian population, with very few exceptions. Um, the, most of the men are, are massacred, uh, very few of them survive. The women and children are deported in these convoys towards the deserts of Syria in appalling conditions. Um, many, many of them die on the way. Um, many are abducted um, into Turkish families or, or, or adopted into Turkish families. And then this Armenian population ends up in the deserts of Syria. More, more are killed there in 1916. And those who are left um, spread out into the Middle East or into what becomes um, Russian Soviet Armenia. Uh, and so a few years later, probably only 10% of the Armenian population of the Ottoman Empire is left. Meanwhile, of course, the Ottoman Empire itself collapses in, in, in 1918. More wars, and in 1923, the Republic of Turkey uh, is founded. So, but, but let me just um, go back, come back to the present, um, and talk about this break in the narrative. Um, and this is particularly strong in Kurdish areas of Turkey. Now, take a look at this this picture. This really is is this picture. When you look at it, tells you how much um, parts of Turkey, not all of Turkey, but parts of Turkey have changed in the last 10 years. Now, this is an Armenian church. This is in the city of Diyarbakir, which is a Kurdish majority city in southeastern Turkey. Um, ten years ago, this uh, church was in ruins, open to the sky, sheep were grazing, there were trees growing. And then a few years ago, the Kurdish municipality of Diyarbakir took the decision, uh, in collaboration with Armenians, to restore the church. And restore it not just as a museum, but, also, but actually as a working church. Um, now, I traveled I in, got to know this gentleman, who is the Armenian bishop of, Eastern Bishop of the United States, Bishop Basanian. Um, he invited me to join a group he was leading across uh, southeastern Turkey. 
And uh, we arrived in Diyarbakir, and the Kurdish mayor of the city greeted this Armenian group. It was very moving occasion, greeted, saying, welcome back, brothers and sisters, welcome to your homeland, welcome to your church. And the next day, uh, the bishop uh, sang an Armenian requiem service in this newly uh, restored church. Now, this would not have been possible a few years ago. Um, it's a very uneven change in Turkey, but the, the Kurdish parts of Turkey are particularly changing. This obviously has a political dimension, in the sense that the, uh, the Kurds are trying to break the idea that, that um, Turkey is a kind of ethnic state, the Turkish, the Turks alone. And so the Arme Armenians are useful allies uh, in that political project. Um, but, you know, for whatever reason, uh, the narrative is changing uh, in, in um, Eastern Turkey. So um, let me introduce another theme. Basically, my, my theme is really the history of the history and the way each generation has reconceptualized, remembered, forgotten, politicized the issue of, of what happened to the Armenians. And let me make an initial point, which is that the United States has been involved in this right from the beginning. Um, and this gentleman is Henry Morgenthau, who was the US ambassador to the Ottoman Empire during the First World War. Um, uh, he was actually Jewish. It was a tradition of sending uh, Jewish Americans to that post. It was the only post, diplomatic post, that Jewish Americans were, were allocated in the Ottoman Empire. So Morgantown, um, son of a rich New York Jewish family, becomes the ambassador. And his tenure coincides with the First World War, with his deportations. And he's a kind of early humanitarian. He's a kind of George Soros before his day. Uh, and he uh, strongly takes issue with the, with, with the German Turkish government at the time, sends cables back to Washington, um, and he is, as the neutral ambassador in the Ottoman Empire, um, takes issue, um, but is not listened to. Uh, and then after the First World War, he writes the first history in the English language of what had happened. These mem it's a kind of part of the genre of Washington memoirs, spilling the secrets of what had happened behind the scenes, but in this case, uh, the story of what had happened in the Ottoman Empire in the First World War and the deportation of the Armenians. Now, after the First World War, the United States gets involved in another way, the world's first big humanitarian aid project uh, is launched, uh, and it's basically to feed the starving peoples um, of the Ottoman Empire, and in particular, the Armenians. And um, enormous fundraising efforts throughout the United States. Um, some members of the older generation um, some of you may be even here, say that in the 1940s they were told to have finished their plates by their parents because remember the starving Armenians. Um, and um, so take a look at this picture. I think this tells you a lot that you need to know. This is um, the largest orphanage in the world, 1921. You can see the American flag in the middle. This is 25,000 children, 25,000 orphans. Um, so that's uh, a kind of sobering picture. In this United States run orphanage in a town which was called uh, Alexandropol in the Russian Empire, uh, then became Lenin Khan in the Soviet Union and is now called Gumri, the second city of Armenia. Uh, the United States actually ran this orphanage um, right into the for several years in, inside Soviet Bolshevik Armenia. Uh, and this brings my to my next theme, which is the theme of forgetting. Obviously, if you're an orphan, you don't have family 
You don't, you don't remember where you come from. Um, you can't remember the past. Um, and the 1920s and 30s, this theme, this topic, what happened, the slaughter of the Armenians, around one million probably uh, Armenians slaughtered, is forgotten. Um, it's remembered privately in families, but as a public um, issue, it basically disappears from public discourse. Uh, and these orphans, I think, tell you uh, a large reason why. Two states are founded basically on the principle of forgetting, two republics of forgetting, if you like. One's the Soviet Union, founded in 1922, which draws a line under the past and build, building a bright socialist future. And in 1923, the Republic of Turkey is founded also on the principle of forgetting. Forgetting not just the Armenians, but generally anyone um, who, as it were, existed before 1923, whether they be Greeks, uh, the Kurds are assimilated, um, and um, the Republic of Turkey is also a republic of forgetting. The Ottoman script is replaced by a Latin script, which means suddenly uh, that you can't even read a book uh, published uh, in the prior era. The language is cleaned up, the clothes uh, are changed, everything has changed, the legal system has changed. Um, 1923 is year zero, uh, as one Turkish historian uh, calls it, uh, Halil Bektai says, this is the the myth of the immaculate conception of the Turkish Republic. Uh, it's as though it's born in conflict. Um, so this is the theme of, of forgetting. And yet, uh, obviously, the topic doesn't go away. It lives in, in, in the memories of those Armenians whose, whose parents and grandparents have been killed uh, in, 1920, in 1915. And this brings me to another theme about how this atrocity, and obviously other atrocities as well, but, but this atrocity against the Armenians uh, is repackaged, packaged and repackaged um, in world geopolitics. Um, think of a triangle in which the Armenians are in one corner, the Turks, the Muslim Turks, and other Muslims in another, and the, the great powers are in the third corner. Uh, in World War I, the great powers are, are Russia, uh, France, Great Britain, uh, and basically the, the Turks and the, and the other Muslims abuse the Armenians. The great powers abuse the Turks. And the Armenians, uh, for understandable reasons, seek an alliance with the great powers to, to defend themselves, which in turn uh, associates them uh, as a fifth column of, of the great powers. So there's a kind of triangle of abuse which goes round and round. And of course, the great powers occasionally take up the Armenian cause and use it to beat the Turks. And then suddenly they need Turkey uh, and they drop the Armenians again, and, and, and things often get worse. Um, so suddenly the Armenian uh, cause is taken up again um, after the Second World War by no other than Joseph Stalin. Um, and this is again a classic example of the kind of great power manipulation of the topic. So take a look at this slide, which takes a bit of deciphering. Now, a very interesting slide. Uh, let me take you through it. We're in. Um, the port of Alexandria in Egypt. This is probably 1947 or 1948. You can see Armenian writing on this ship. You can see Arabic writing. You can see Stalin, and I, I believe that's the Armenian hero, General Andrani. Uh, now, what's, what's happening here is that at the end of the Second World War, the Soviet Union is making territorial claims on basically all its neighbors. So Stalin wants to expand the Soviet Union, so he makes claims against Finland, Poland, Germany, Iran, and also Turkey. Um, Stalin and Molotov suddenly decide, they, they tell the Turks, we want two provinces 
of yours, uh, cars and Ardahan, they were part of the Russian Empire, so we would like them, please. Um, and um, we will make threatening noises uh, in the process. And um, this rather crazy scheme is accompanied by uh, uh, an even crazier project in a way, which is to invite 300,000 Armenians from the diaspora to come and come back, come to the Soviet Union, and eventually repopulate uh, these two provinces. Now, um, Armenians are suddenly awakened uh, all across the Middle East. Uh, they, particularly the left-wingers, believe that the Soviet Union just won the war and is building a bright socialist future. Some of them sell their cars and apartments in Beirut and Cairo. They get aboard these ships. They sail to the Soviet Union, and you can probably guess the rest. It's a complete disaster. Um, they find Armenia is not able, is, is actually poor, there's no running water, the locals are suspicious of them, afraid to associate with them, the locals actually speak a different form of Armenian. Uh, there aren't conditions, they've got a one-way ticket, they want to leave, they can't leave. The whole project is a disaster. About 80,000 Armenians go back, some of them are even sent to Siberia later by Stalin. Um, so that's a disaster, and also, um, the project is a disaster in the sense that it actually achieves the opposite of what Stalin had intended. The Turks, in order to repel these territorial claims, moved faster towards the United States in particular, and in 1952, Turkey joins NATO. So at this point, the Armenian-Turkish theme is suddenly repackaged in terms of the Cold War, with the Armenians on one side, the Soviet Union, and Turkey as a member of NATO and an ally of the United States uh, and, and Western Europe. Now, another thing happens uh, uh, in this period, that's the Holocaust, uh, the final solution of the Jews in, in Europe, this absolutely massive crime against humanity. Uh, and this brings me to my next theme, and to this gentleman. This is uh, Raphael Lemkin, uh, the Polish Jewish lawyer, who um, has long believed that there needs to be a legal crime named for which is a destruction of a whole people rather than just of individuals. Um, he um, regards the Armenians as a historical case study of this. Um, his family is, is basically wiped out in the Holocaust. In 1944, he writes a book for my own organization, as it happens, the Carnegie Endowment of International Peace, and he coins the word genocide to describe this crime. Um, there's a huge spirit of international humanitarianism after the Holocaust, never again at the end of the Second World War, and all the victorious nations agree this is important. And in 1948, the United Nations uh, ratified, um, passes and then later ratifies uh, the Convention on the Prevention of Genocide, thanks to Lemkin's efforts. Um, now, this is a, a kind of noble moment and a noble idea, um, but in my analysis, it's also has holes in it, and the noble, noble idea doesn't quite succeed. Um, the, the, the word is so uh, toxic, so totemic, uh, that it's immediately uh, appropriated by various political forces. It's also quite legalistic. The United Nations um, definition is ambiguous. And so suddenly, um, this grand post-Second World War idea of genocide suddenly becomes, in the Cold War, a term of political abuse which is being thrown back and forth, particularly between the United States uh, and the Soviet Union. And of course, the Armenians are also caught up in this. The Armenians gradually begin to adopt the word for themselves. 
but in the United States, um, the word genocide in this period, in the 1950s, is, is basically used against the Soviet Union. Um, and in my book, I actually have uh, a story of 1955. Uh, Senate, Senator Herbert Lehman of New York is invited to address an Armenian nationalist exile uh, occasion in New York. Um, the Dashnak Sutun Party, the Nationalist Party, invites him. Uh, and he gives a speech, and he, and he talks about genocide. We need to ratify the Genocide Convention. The Armenians are the victims of genocide by the Soviet Union. 1955. He, he doesn't mention the Turks. Um, the, the entire conception and construction in the minds of the US Senator, even to an Armenian audience, is about the Soviet Union, uh, not about Turkey. Um, now we reach the 1960s, and, and various elements come together. Um, let me name some of them, which again reconceptualizes this issue. One, one I would say is Holocaust consciousness. Um, as many of you know, uh, the State of Israel uh, didn't immediately, uh, for the first 10 or 15 years of its existence, did not talk about the Holocaust. It was something uh, they didn't want to be victims. It was shameful to have suffered and not resisted. Uh, Israel was a warrior nation. That changed in the early 1960s, in particular with the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem. And suddenly, Holocaust consciousness takes shape, and the, and the Holocaust hadn't really been talked about immediately after the war, suddenly becomes a huge issue. Uh, secondly, uh, I would say identity politics in general. The 1960s, it's a civil rights movement. It's a, an era in which suddenly it's okay to have been a victim. Um, it's not shameful of collective identity politics. People come out and say it's all right to be a victim. Thirdly, uh, diaspora exiled Armenians around the world. Um, they were not born in the Ottoman Empire. They're beginning to lose their uh, identity, their language. Uh, they're seeking an idea which keeps them alive as Armenians and, and against fighting assimilation. And fourthly, um, the 50th anniversary of the genocide in, in 1965. Um, all these elements come together, and I was making a bit of a simplification. I would say April 1965 is the moment in which the catastrophe becomes the genocide which is reconceptualized and, and rises again suddenly as a big issue for the Armenians uh, all over the world. But most strikingly, and this is, this is fascinating, in Soviet Armenia itself, this Republic of Forgetting suddenly remembers, pretty much on one day overnight, suddenly remembers what had happened. There are a lot of these uh, immigrants help, the people who came in the 40s from the Middle East. These students have been um, uh, trying to uh, organize on April the 24th, which is the relevant day. And suddenly on April 24th, 1965, small demonstrations uh, spiral and spiral, and suddenly the whole, all the streets of Yerevan, the capital of Soviet Armenia, are filled with demonstrators. And you can see the uh, banner uh, about Ararat saying the Armenian question, Haidah. Uh, and suddenly, Soviet Armenian, pretty much overnight on that day, wakes up to this issue. And from that point, Soviet Armenia it's no longer just a socialist republic, it's also an Armenian national uh, republic as well, in which this is, becomes one of the issues. Um, now, the 1970s is, is an era of even greater radicalism, um, and uh, the most uh, Armenians are the most radical, in particular in Beirut, in the Middle East. Uh, and in the 1970s, um, 
two parallel Armenian terrorist groups form. Uh, they're kind of doing the same thing, but they're in competition. The Armenian diaspora has been very divided throughout the 20th century. Two, there would be any community would have two churches, two newspapers, two schools, and sure enough, in favor of two terrorist groups, uh, one leftist and one more nationalist uh, associated with the Dachau party. They formed in the 1970s. The leftists, I would say, inspired very much by the Palestinians in Beirut, and seeing that the Palestinians are not being merely passive, but they're going out and, and reminding the world of, the, of, of, of their cause through, through violence. And, and this is the, kind of the next phase. Um, these, these Armenian terrorist groups strike around the world, killing uh, Turkish diplomats, and this suddenly brings the Armenian uh, question suddenly back to Turkey, which has completely forgotten what had happened. Um, one book is published in Turkey between 1930 and 1970s about uh, the Armenians, but suddenly in the, with this wave of terrorism, this very strong nationalist counter-narrative suddenly arises in Turkey in response to the Armenians. Um, now, this also, remembering our topic of the Cold War, rebounds, redounds uh, in the United States. Um, the United States has basically um, um, had a perfectly okay policy on this on this issue. They've, when they mentioned the Armenians, they mentioned Armenia and genocide in the same sentence. Ronald Reagan, who was the governor of California, has has been to lay flowers at the genocide monument in Montebello in 1981. He actually talks about the genocide of the Armenians in the statement. That all changes again pretty much overnight. Um, and again, this is a pivotal moment for me. This is a man. This gentleman is called um, Kemal Arakan. He is the Turkish consul in Los Angeles. Um, and he's driving to work one day in Los Angeles uh, his, in January of 1982. His car stops at a stoplight. And two, maybe if anyone wants to ask a question, there's a tantalizing moment of inflection which doesn't happen, which is that the Turkish foreign minister reaches out um, in with some courage and secures a secret meeting with three Armenian political leaders. Um, and they have a secret meeting in, in Zurich in 1977. This is Turkish Foreign Minister Sabri um and one of the Armenian leaders on the right. Uh, they meet, um, I tell the story in my book, it's a moment, a tantalizing moment in which they actually have a chance to talk to each other, but nothing comes of it. Um, and a couple of months later, the, the minister is reshuffled and this moment disappears into history. And, and in fact, no one in Turkey knew about this until I, until I kind of started to reconstruct the story in my book. But um, I don't. I, I should probably leave some time to hear your question, so I won't. I won't go into that. That's also part of that. Now, um, in the meantime, another important moment is 1991. The oh, wait a minute. Let me let me go go here and then come back. 1991. Uh, the Soviet Union breaks up, um, and Armenia becomes independent, um, and this is another tantalizing moment in which um, the Republic of Turkey has an opportunity to recognize and open diplomatic relations with the Republic of Armenia in the early 90s, uh, but doesn't take the opportunity. Uh, that falls apart for various reasons, and then this is revived in 2009, 2007 to 2009, and there's another attempt in that period 
uh, with Israel's foreign ministers of, of Armenia and Turkey signing two protocols on normalization in 2009, which unfortunately fails. There are too many spoilers um, to make that happen. Um, again, I tell the story in my book, but um, um, amongst the Armenian diaspora, there are many skeptics, but Azerbaijan in particular, which has its own conflict with Armenia, uh, is a spoiler. And to this day, um, the border is closed between Armenia and Turkey, and they have no diplomatic relations. Um, but in 2002, as I mentioned earlier, um, a new post capitalist government is elected in Turkey, uh, the AKP, which um, this is Ahmed Davutoglu, now Prime Minister, was Foreign Minister of the AKP. Um, and space opens up, um, and um, Turkey begins to confront some of its taboos uh, and its past. Um, and throughout the 20th century, there have actually been Armenians living in uh, Istanbul, but they've very much kept their heads down. Um, but suddenly one of them, and that's this gentleman, Frank Dink, um, suddenly puts his head over the parapet and becomes a public figure. And this, for me, is, a, is again a moment of hope. Um, you have an Armenian, ethnic Armenian, who's a citizen of Turkey, who's a journalist, and he starts to publish a newspaper called Agros, which is published in both Armenian and Turkish. And he basically starts to um, spread a new idea, a new discourse. But it's possible to, to deal with this issue um, in Turkey itself. He's not interested in what foreign parliaments have to say. He says, this crime happened in Turkey. We have to deal with it in Turkey. He doesn't blame the Turkish public for its denialism. He says, the Turkish public knows no better, this is what they grew up with. They're defending the truth they know, so we need to talk to them, we need to educate them, we need to work within Turkey uh, on the Turkish society and the Turkish public. He's a very brave man, breaks lots of taboos. He's not very popular in the Armenian diaspora because of his message about dialogue with Turks. He's even less popular amongst Turkish nationalists who see him as, as, as breaking too many uh, taboos. Um, and he's got a wonderful turn of phrase, a wonderful way of encapsulating the issues. Um, I could fill, my, fill the evening with, with, with the wise words of, of Frank Dink, but let me share one thing that he said. He said, we the Armenians um, and the Turks, we both have clinical, we both have medical conditions, he said. For us Armenians, it's trauma, and for the Turks, it's paranoia. <laughs> uh, that pretty much encapsulates to me the, the, the issue. Uh, he also says that for Armenians, Turkey is the poison and Turkey is the antidote, which I think is another very, very wise phrase. Now, unfortunately, another tragic moment, another teenage assassin. Um, in January 2007, Frank Dink sets foot outside his office and is assassinated by a 17-year-old. It's an awful moment. For Turkey, it's an awful moment for Armenians. Um, it's an awful moment for civil rights in Turkey in general because Frank Dink has spoken up not just for Armenians, but for Kurds, for women, for religious minorities. Uh, he's represented more than just the Armenians. Um, if there's a small silver lining to this terrible day, it's, the, it's what happened on the day of Frank Dink's funeral. And this is Istanbul on the day of Frank Dink's funeral. A, suddenly, ordinary Turks are so indignant uh, and angry that they pour out onto the streets in solidarity with Frank Dink, and they hold these banners, and you can see that they're saying, we are all Frank Dink, 
we are all Armenians. This is Turkey in 2007. This is a measure of the fact that Turkey, elements of Turkey have changed and are now actually carrying banners that say we are all Armenians on, on, on the streets uh, of, of, of Istanbul. Um, let me just come to a close because I'm sure you want to ask questions. Um, just to return to the idea that, that this is still a live political issue. Um, this is April 24th, a couple of years ago. This is Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, D.C. And this is still this rather painful sight of Armenians standing outside the Turkish em uh, embassy saying, Turkey, admit your guilt, holding pictures of dead bodies, which for me is a very kind of bizarre and, and sad thing to do, um, not to hold pictures of live, your live descendants as they were, but to hold pictures of them, gruesome pictures of dead bodies. This kind of pain, this need to kind of try and prove to Turkey, Turkey is the poison and Turkey is the antidote. This is April the 24th of 2013. Um, Armenians standing outside the Turkish embassy, feeling that they need to say something to Turkey on, on that day, rather than to themselves. And on the other side of the street, a much smaller group um, saying, there's only about 10 of them actually, outside the Turkish embassy, saying, stop Armenian lies, stop Armenian terrorists. Um, I actually went up to these people and I talked to both sides of the street and I said, these Turks, I said, well, your government has actually stopped those slogans. Why are you still, why are you still saying these slogans? And, and, and the man looked at Chief and said, maybe it's time to change the banners. We haven't changed them for a few years. But this, I'm afraid, is, 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 is this kind of idea of, of, of two Armenians and Turks locking themselves in this steady embrace of kind of accusation uh, and denial. Let me be clear, I'm not, I'm not standing in, in the, on, the, on the yellow lines here. I'm, I, I don't believe, I believe that the, I'm more on the Armenian side of the street, but I, I'm just, um, when it comes to the historical version of what happened, but I, I just believe that this kind of polarization um, has basically reached a dead end, and that, that the kind of frank dink method that you need to work inside Turkey, you need to have a dialogue within Turkish, society it, it is, is probably the only way forward out of here. And let me just conclude with a story for you. This, and this is actually uh, on the front cover of my book. Um, so in 2012, I went with this Armenian group to southeastern Turkey with the bishop. And with a small group of five or six Armenians, we, I joined them going to the town uh, of Marash, now called Kahramaran. And one of these Armenians knew the town so well, she studied so well researching her family history that she knew her way around the old town. And she found uh, the way to the house of an eye doctor who had looked after her grandfather when he was a child. We found this house, we banged on the gate. There was no one at home. And then two women across the way, this narrow street, called us in and said, you look like you're Armenians, come, come over and talk to us. And then we went into their courtyard and they pulled out this photograph and they said, look at that lady, the old lady staring out at the picture with the white headscarf. She's called Veronica and she was the kind of grandmother of the family, she was Armenian. Um, and then there was lots of kind of conversations and hugs and laughter and, and then this lady calls her cousin and the cousin is an insurance broker, we go to the other side of the town, the cousin has many more photographs, much more information. Um, and then suddenly, 
linked to me. Oh, this is a Chalakian. Oh, my, my grandfather was a friend of a Chalakian. And then someone else is saying, oh, yes, but and the richest, one of the richest men in Sao Paulo is a Chalakian. And all these threads are being tied back together. Um, and it turns out that in this part of the world, people don't forget. They actually know, they don't, in private, they don't forget. They know who their grandparents were, they know who their great-grandparents were, they know all the stories. And these people, in ordinary people in Turkey, they know exactly what happened to the Armenians. They know who was an Armenian, who survived, um, who was taken into these uh, Kurdish and Turkish families. And, and this lady, Veronica, is one of them. So you could say it's, it's a whole civilization was, was destroyed. This is just one fragment that's left. But you can also say it's pretty remarkable that this memory has survived. And there is a basis to work with in the region that the Armenians left in, in 1915 for Armenians and Kurds and Turks to kind of remember and explore their shared past. So on that slightly hopeful note, I'll, I'll, I'll stop and I'll be happy. That's some questions. Thank you. Uh, so now we'll take some questions. The way this will work is, uh, after you raise your hand, then I call on you. Somebody will come around with a microphone. Please wait for the microphone. And I also ask that your questions be brief, that your questions are actually questions. And please also identify yourself. So we can start now. Uh, way in the back, way at the top. Yeah, my name is uh, John Stafford. It's sort of two observations that come together to be sort of uh, two parts of one question. First, it seems like you're suggesting that the modern Turkish leadership, the AKP, would be more likely to recognize the genocide than, say, the Ataturk faction in Turkey. So I wanted to just confirm that you are, in fact, implying that, which seems a bit counterintuitive. And then the second. Uh, observation that's related is you seem to be suggesting that a space has opened in Turkey uh, to take a more liberal perspective on this and yet that seems sort of counter to my impressions of this sort of formal AKP stance so if you could sort of address both those uh, potential sure. dichotomies sure. I'd appreciate it. Thank you well let me it's a complex picture let me be start with, with that and, and it's probably the Turkish thaw is, is possibly beginning to freeze over a bit the last couple of years. But, um, but the, in its early years, certainly the AKP government broke with the kind of old uh, Kemalist perspective on, on forgetting the past, forgetting the Ottoman past, and um, was opening up to the Ottoman past. And the Ottoman past includes Greeks, Armenians, and, and Kurds, which is obviously the really important one in, in contemporary Turkey. Now, it's an uneven process. Uh, the AKP also has its own ideology, which is obviously getting a bit stronger now uh, as Erdogan consolidate, consolidates himself. But, but there's no question that the space opened up um, to talk about the past. I mean, you can now go into a, a Turkish bookstore, and there'll still be some of the old books on the shelves, but there'll be new books using the phrase Armenian Genocide, Ermeni Sokurum, on the shelves. Um, there'll be history books. Um, you can go to conferences, as I have two or three times now in Turkey, where Armenians and Turks are, are talking about history. Um, 
It's a very uneven process. It's strongest, as I say, amongst codes, amongst urban intellectuals. Um, but the space has opened up, and I don't think it will ever completely close down. So, Diana Fears. Uh, so, a related question. Why did the 2009 um die? You know, why, why is there this, and not just the polarization here in the United States, but why did that die in Turkey and, and Armenia? Does it have anything to do with Russian politics? And yeah, thank you. That's a really, really big topic, which I try to explain. Uh, in the book, and it's a, it's a very complicated point. I think many spoilers to this process, and maybe not enough kind of diplomatic resources uh, devoted to it. The biggest spoiler being Azerbaijan, which I haven't really mentioned here, but um, the border is actually closed in 1990. There's a couple, couple of years between 91 and 93 when the Armenian, new Armenian government is basically proposing normalization without preconditions, without mentioning genocide or anything. And, and really, it's, it's an open door for Turkey to take that. Uh, uh, and it doesn't, unfortunately, for various reasons. In 93, the war over Karabakh with Azerbaijan escalates. Turkey has solidarity with, with Azerbaijan, uh, and Turkey closes the border. And from that point, Azerbaijan becomes linked into the Armenian it's no longer just a bilateral issue, it's a trilateral issue, which makes it much more complicated. Um, and uh, I think there are many arguments that it would be a win-win-win if the border opened. It would be uh, for Turkey, for Armenia, and maybe with a bit of a delay for Azerbaijan as well. Um, but unfortunately, it ends up being a lose-lose-lose because Azerbaijan <laughs> uh, in particular, but not just Azerbaijan, um, is, is, is nervous about this process and just everything block it. But there's also another theme here which is which is a big difference in perspective between Eastern and Western Armenians. The Eastern Armenians are those uh, in what was Russian Armenia becomes briefly independent Armenia in 1918, becomes Soviet Armenia and then independent Armenia in 1991. Those are the Eastern Armenians. Now their focus is very much on building a viable state of Armenia, a republic or state of Armenia. That's really that, where their energy goes. And then in the 90s, also the big, other big issues, Karabakh and Azerbaijan. Turkey, or genocide issues, comes down the list. But if you're a, for the Western Armenians, those are the descendants of, of those who were deported uh, or massacred in 1915 and then fled into exile. This is everything. This is my grandparents. This is my homeland. This is my whole identity. So this is the big issue. Um, this agreement. Um, had a small bit of it, which was a, a joint subcommission on historical issues. For Eastern Armenians, this was not a big deal, but for Western Armenians, this looked like fact we are allowing a historical review of something we know to be the case, and that's unacceptable. So you can see, again, different perspectives there. And also, so many diaspora Armenians, not all, but many diaspora Armenians also opposed the normalization process on, on that basis. Oh, I'm sorry. Hello, my name is Devin Conley, and I uh, 
I noticed that in, when you were explaining the last photograph, you used that as an example of how people don't forget. Yet on an everyday basis, they are forgetting it. As in Karabakh, the textbooks are being rewritten on, you know, on the Turkish and the Armenian sides, uh, and you know, a century has passed. How is hope dwindling over time? I mean, how how long can we not forget and still hold on to the promise of moving forward and building a relationship again between these two right. parties to the conflict? Yeah, this is clearly a huge issue, which which there's no simple answer to. I, I would say. There's, a, there's a, a gap between the kind of public discourse, what people read in the textbooks or what we see on TV, and, and, and the private discourse. And I was very struck in Turkey uh, that ordinary people know a lot more about the Armenians than, you know, than they would have read in, in their school textbooks. The same actually in Armenia and Azerbaijan as well. Um, people can hold two ideas in their head which are quite contradictory. I guess the, the other factor here, and this is a really interesting topic which, which requires a lot more study, a very, very sensitive study, this is the issue of the Islamized Armenians. So this is the fact that maybe way more than, than we, we knew or thought, women and children, Armenian women and children, were left behind in 1915. Uh, it was kind of written about at the time, then they kind of disappeared. Many of them were adopted out of charity, many of them were violently abducted, many women were raped, but all of them were absorbed, those women and children were absorbed into Muslim families, and they kind of disappear from the story. Um, and they're forgotten about in the Armenian diaspora, they're just lost. Um, and they're forgotten about in Turkey because they've become Islamized, they've, they've taken on Turkish or Kurdish names. Except they haven't been forgotten because suddenly, um, when the moment arrives in the early 2000s, Everyone knows who, um, who's, who's, who these people were. And I met some of these people, and they're very kind of conflicted. And, and, and not surprisingly, they, they, they don't know Armenian. They have Muslim names. But in that Armenian church in Diyarbakir, there's lots and lots of people coming to the church and saying, and kind of rather quietly saying, um, I'm Armenian, and this place belongs to me too. So who are these, these people? Um, and the other thing, extraordinary things happen in Turkey. It's a spate of memoirs, um, in particular I mentioned one by Petya Chetin in 2004 called My Grandmother, where she writes a very, very moving story about how um, when her grandmother was fairly old, she discovers that she's not the Turkish grandmother she thought she was, she was actually an Armenian orphan. Uh, and her whole world is turned upside down, her grandmother was actually not, her grandmother's parents were not her real parents, but were actually her abductors and the whole the whole world is turned upside down, and then she tries to seek out her Armenian cousins. And, and after that memoir came out, suddenly a, a floodgates opened, and, and, and lots and lots of people, um, some rather unexpected people in Turkey, were owning up to their Armenian grandparents. So, so that it's, it's not just about discourse, it's also about real, real people. Uh, can you uh, say a few more things about the uh, Kurdish relationship? Because it's kind of interesting, on the one hand, they're the other uh, non-Turkish major group that has tried to be assimilated forcefully. But then there's also the fact that in the 19th century, especially, they were very much complicit in the uh, killing of Armenians. So is that part of the conversation with Armenians now, that this approachment does that include that historical reflection? Yeah. <coughs> This is another 
amazingly interesting topic, which would be worth several books. Um, but yes, in that part of eastern Turkey, the main there were actually quite a few ethnic Turks. I mean, the main groups were the, were the Kurds, who were very poor, and the Armenians, who were who, who were the more wealthy associated economic group. And they were in big competition in that period. And in 1915, many of the people who perpetrated atrocities against Armenians were indeed Kurdish. Um, but then um, there's a kind of apocryphal story that Armenian, which both Armenians and Kurds tell, they, kind of, they try and sort of wrestle with this issue, and they say, and, and it probably isn't true, but it should be true, as it were, that an Armenian bishop is being led to his death in Diyarbakir in 1915, and he says to the Kurdish chieftain, we're the breakfast and you'll be the lunch. Uh, and the Kurds tell the story and they say, if only we'd known, we should have listened to the Armenians. Um, and so the Kurds have kind of reconceptualized this issue, but we should have known. The Kurdish party, the, the, which was the BDP, is now the HDP, has actually issued an apology to the Armenians, and they, they sort of completely turned things around. Um, obviously for their own political agenda, but in quite a, a genuine way. As an interlude, I'd like to ask you a little bit uh, about your methodology as a journalist in writing this book. Uh, how much time do you spend? How did you decide what cities to visit? How were you received? And do you have any advice for uh, future journalists uh, who might want to write a book like this someday? Right. Um, thanks, Scott. Well, let, let, let me you know, say, say first that this is you know, I did obviously, I do like to do my own research, but um, uh, I don't have, in this instance, uh, I don't have the languages. Um, and this it is, in a way, a very long article, a very long essay. It's not a, you know, it's not a, it probably wouldn't, wouldn't pass PhD muster. Um, but, um, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. Um, but, and clearly, for the last 20 years, I, I did tons of interviews with, with all sorts of people, um, and, and I'm pretty confident of that, of that. And I was also lucky at Carnegie to have a research assistant who read through decades worth of Armenian English language newspapers, which gave an extraordinary sense of, of how you know, the salience of, of certain issues in, 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 certain, in certain periods. Um, I do, you know, I, I think, I think there is a kind of genre which I'm part of, which I think more people, as, as far as I'm concerned, should be engaged in, which is investigating, uh, as it were, the recent past, talking to people who are still alive and, and interviewing them. And, and um, so it's, it's somewhere between current affairs and history uh, in that kind of twilight zone. And I think um, there's an enormous amount to be discovered when you do that kind of research. Uh, and also when um, when you try and, as I do, write it for a more general readership, not just for the for the academy. Um, and so um, my advice to anyone, people come and see me in Washington DC and ask me about careers and say, well, you shouldn't be here, you should be out there. Um, I'm here, but I, you know, only because I spend a long time out there and I'm, and I'm resting here briefly, but um, get out there, talk to the people, They've got the stories, um, and you'll bring back stories that can change people's perspectives if you read it out.
Sorry, yeah. My name is Alex Kocharov. Uh, my family was killed in city of Kars. Now it's Turkey. And then in Azerbaijan, I lived in Baku, we become all part of Soviet Union. And for 70 years, we've been told that we're now one nation, one people, we're all brothers and sisters. And we naively believe that it's true. Many of us get married with Azerbaijanis. Many of us believe that we are now friends. We try to forget the genocide of 1915. We try to believe our government that everything is behind. And then in 1988, they killed us again in Sumgait. Genocide words fell into the category of ethnic cleansing, Holocaust, not catastrophe. Catastrophe is about tsunami or earthquake. So it's happened with us again in 1988 in Sumgait. And two years later in Baku, millions of Armenians was fleeing Baku, hundreds of thousands was killed. It was not only Armenians. After they get rid of all Armenians in Baku and Azerbaijan, they start killing Russians. That's when Moscow gave an order to occupy Baku with tanks. Do you see that it's the same sequence? 1915, 1988, Sumgait, and then 1990, Baku was, hundreds of thousands was killed. Do you see that they don't, cannot stand us, they cannot live together? Okay, okay. I have written a book on, also written a book on the Karabakh conflict, which is also out on the, the table out there. And I, I would um, take it, you know, clearly, I, I would take issue with you a little, I would say 1915 was, uh, you know, the worst crime atrocity of the First World War. Uh, we're talking about a million, possibly more Armenians being killed. Um, whereas the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict uh, is a different conflict. It's it's um, it's a more symmetrical conflict in which Armenians were also uh, responsible for uh, atrocities. Um, the Armenian-Turkish com conflict is not is very asymmetrical, basically. You know, there were instances later of Armenians killing Turks, but, but they were much on a much smaller scale. So I, I, I would take issue with you that it's all part of a sequence. Um, if you look in 1918 in Baku, first of all, in March, you have the Armenians killing the Azeris, and in September, the Azeris killing the Armenians. If you look in um, the Karabakh conflict, um, there's ethnic cleansing on both sides, so I, I would say that's much more of a, of a symmetrical conflict. And I would also say, I think catastrophe is a bigger word than genocide. I think catastrophe, genocide is a, is, is a word to describe a crime. A catastrophe describes a much bigger phenomenon. It describes more than just the crime. It describes the devastation of the culture. It describes what happens to everyone, not just the victims. I, I, think, I think I regard catastrophe as a bigger word than genocide. Hmm. Hi, I'm Sasha Kavitian. Um, I, I currently am researching about the, the Caucasian conflicts and stuff. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I had a question because um, 
uh, I was studying in a Middle Eastern politics class, the difference between terrorism and freedom fighting. Um, as we saw with uh, the, the claim, uh, the Armenian terrorism, would that be more considered freedom fighting as, or at, at a sense of like kind of, well, I, I don't know the specific word, lack of a better word, I'm gonna say freedom fighting because it's like, you know, they weren't like causing fear or causing, you know, uh, political distress. They were kind of, you know, you know, making, you know, themselves uh, kind of remember, like saying like, don't forget the, you know, Armenians and, you know, kind of like the Algerians during the Algerian revolution in the 1960s, you know? So would you right. consider that terrorism? Or, uh, I, I, I would consider it terrorism because I don't, um, I mean, I think terrorism is, a, is also a problematic word, clearly, uh, and, and terrorism, you know, terrorists do have the habit of becoming freedom fighters and, and, and vice versa. But um, you might call someone who was, you know, in the Dashnak Sutun in Van fighting Turks, he might be a freedom fighter, he's fighting on his own territory, but to, in Los Angeles uh, to assassinate a Turkish consul or in Paris or in Vienna, I don't regard that as, personally, this is my personal opinion, see what others have to say, I don't regard that as, 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 as a blow for freedom. I don't, particularly that that person has no relationship to the, the assassin. You emphasize the importance of dialogue within Turkey in resolving um, the debate about whether this was genocide and, and the, the trauma on both sides. But as we know, other parties have gotten involved in the conflict, including the US. I'm wondering if you see a constructive role for outside parties, and if so, what that role might look like. Sure, well, I mean, obviously, um, if I go, that's a great question. If you go back to that triangle I mentioned, uh, which has the great powers in one corner, uh, then we still have the latter-day great powers, and the United States being, being obviously one of them, still having a role. Uh, but I would say the most useful role, one of the most useful roles, clearly there's a you know, diplomacy facilitation role, you know, you saw Hillary Clinton in one of those pictures, that's, that's, that's good, and I take that, almost take that for granted, I think that's, that's good. But in the broader scheme of things, I, I think it's, it would be good if the, self, the great powers, so-called, were a bit more self-critical about their own role in, in, the, in the way they manipulate uh, these events, um, and, uh, and, and ask themselves, you know, how they may have, by doing things and not doing things, have made things worse. Um, I also think there's a legitimate question, um, you know, I think, you know, there are legitimate reasons why the United States, um, you know, Congress could pass a, a resolution calling it a genocide. I certainly don't conceptually have a problem with that, but I think there is a problem, as people pointed out, um, it's a bit strange that the United States also has its own black periods of history. You know, we're in, in, in the west coast of America, which was hundreds of thousands of Native Americans were living here a couple of centuries ago. What happened to them? Um, and maybe, maybe it's, you know, the United States should be addressing that question first before it judges on you know, genocides several thousand miles away. Thank you. Uh, I'm Amy Hagopian. 
I wonder if you would speak to the views of Israel about the recognition of the genocide. And in my trying to figure this out, I see a fluidity in their position over time. Yeah, that's, that's a kind of kind word to you, like maybe. Um, I mean, unfortunately, you know, clearly the Jews suffered in terms of numbers. We don't want to, I don't want to kind of create a hierarchy of suffering, but in terms of sheer numbers, uh, even greater uh, atrocity in, in the Second World War. Um, and that also presents Israel with a dilemma about to what extent, you know, uh, we uh, honor and remember other atrocities without making it too, uh, you know, having too much relativism. <coughs> um, Israel, again, a case this in the 1940s, um, certain Israelis were, were, were mentioned in the Armenian case was quite sympathetic. Yeah, Israel gets sucked into, again, Cold War politics and alliance with Turkey. And that's one reason that, again, suddenly Israelis suddenly don't want to talk about the Armenian issue. Uh, and curiously enough, things have changed again. Only about a month ago, um, suddenly Erdogan is, is being very anti-Israeli, and suddenly the Israeli ambassador at the UN makes a, a favorable reference to the Armenians from genocide only about a month ago. So I'm afraid one would wish that uh, it was you know, purely a matter of moral judgment and history, but unfortunately, in this case, it's too, this case too geopolitics intervenes. Thank you very much for extraordinary work. Um, my question is around the significance of the 100th anniversary. Do you see this as a pivotal time, pivotal moment for the, for the genocide for recognition? And, and if you were to look back uh, or project what will happen 10 years from now because of this specific year, is there any, um, any predictions on how this is going to be a monumental, will this be a monumental time as you described several other times throughout the history for, for the genocide. I find that um, a bit hard to say. Let's watch what happens in April in Yerevan. Let's see who turns up. And, and um, it, could be a, it could be a kind of cathartic moment in which Armenians feel that there's enough recognition that the ceremony is somehow Get enough residents that it's it's quite a cathartic moment, or it could just alternatively just feel like any other year and, and, and a bit of a kind of an anticlimax. So I, um, it's a bit hard to say. Personally, as you probably gathered, I don't believe that kind of genocide recognition resolutions are the most important thing here. Uh, I kind of uh, I think that um, I can see why they happen, but I also think they have a cost, that they kind of erect a kind of political legal barrier to people who don't know the history to understanding what happened. I think, you know, five tickets to Teen's book have done far more for ordinary people to understand what happened than a hundred uh, resolutions in parliaments around the world. So um, that's my, my, my personal opinion. I think, I think it's a bit early, early to say. Hi, um, George Wright. Uh, first of all, thank you for wading into these really difficult issues. The feelings are raw. History still lives. 
Not everybody has your courage. Um, a quick question about Turkey and Turkish attitudes. It's always been open to the Turks to say, well, horrible things happened under the Ottoman Empire. That's why we had a revolution to get rid of them. And yeah, and, but that is not, does not feel good to almost any Turk that I've talked to. And what's wrong with saying, yeah, that was a bad thing and there was genocide? Right. What goes wrong? Right. That's a great question. Uh, I think maybe we should ask uh, the Turks in the room because they understand the psychology of that a bit better. I mean, I think paranoia is real, I suppose, would be my, would my goodbye, just because uh, maybe as Woody Allen once said, just because I'm paranoid, it doesn't mean people aren't down to get me. Um, um, but I mean, you know, in the, the in the Turkish national consciousness, the, world, the First World War was not the war in which we successfully ethnically cleansed the Armenians and the Greeks. It was the, the war in which the Ottoman Empire was destroyed and the great powers um, tried to dismember it. Um, so there is that in the, in the Turkish national psyche, um, and that has to be addressed. That gets back to the question about you know, how the great powers need to be sensitive in the way that they talk to Turkey. Um, but I mean, I think, I think you know, and then there's the, the genocide word is obviously toxic, and, and, and most Turks feel very uncomfortable with it. But that game, that's changing. I mean, you've got, you've got, you've got some Turks now um, using the word, including, for example, a man called Hassan Jamal, who's the grandson of Jamal Pasha, who's one of the three young Turks. He's written a book with Armenian genocide in the title. So it's, you know, the genie is out of the bottle. Things are changing, not as quickly, maybe, as, as others would like. But, but certainly, you know, Turkey is, is on the move. It is changing. I have um, a, a very quick statement and then a question related to the statement. So recently, Greece, when it's been you know, dealing with uh, the, the new election, it, uh, it has decided to uh, file a claim against Germany for about $30 billion, I recently read, for uh, World War II, That's the sufferings that they endured under the Nazis. I was wondering, is there anything akin to that that Armenia has filed uh, against Turkey uh, or uh, groups of citizens, anything akin to that? There, there are some individual um, cases, um, but I mean, I, in general, um, litigating the past is incredibly difficult, particularly when you're talking about uh, world wars in which multiple actors committed atrocities against each other. Um, in multiple ways, um, um, and we're not talking about even the Second World War, we're talking about the First World War, and we're talking about the Ottoman Empire, which is obviously not, not the same as the Republic of Turkey, so I think there are hugely difficult issues about how you would litigate this. Um, it may be possible in one or two cases, but I, um, I fear that, that, you know, that could just 
um, that kind of litigation might have score one or two personal successes for a few individuals, but might poison attempts at, at, at political dialogue and acknowledgement on part of Turkey, which, which might actually be much more important. All right, well, uh, uh, that's it for tonight. Thanks, everybody, for coming. And on your way out, check out the books at the table and also our brochures. Uh, and also check out the Ellison Center website. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. And once again, join me in uh, thanking Tom DeWall. <laughs>